Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. You need to know some background so you understand what is going on. At this particular time was the Passover, so Jerusalem was teeming with Jews that would come from all over Israel for this Passover time. There was a constant tension between the Jewish people and Rome, and Rome and the Jewish people. And I wish I had time to unpack that so you could understand how and why there's all that tension, but it was there. And to keep the lid on all of this tension, Roman, the Romans, they had the upper hand with all their weaponry and force and power and authority and all of that. They would send in battalions of soldiers there to make sure that they could keep the peace. It's like when you and I know that there's going to be a particular event. They always bring in more police. The police presence could be there. That's happening. So with the Romans, some of those battalions could be as large as 2,000. So the question is, is how many of the soldiers of the Romans came to pick up Jesus here and take him away? Well, some think it could be all 2,000 of them or even more. My personal opinion is I don't think so. I doubt that. The reason being is I don't know that they would have taken all the Roman soldiers that were in Jerusalem and sent them after this one person who they thought was blaspheming or was treasonous or whatever. I do believe it was large enough. And so with a little bit of kind of guessing and passaging and all of that, I think it could be the number between 60 or 100 guys, maybe even up to 200. Now to you that may not mean a lot, but I want you to think for just a moment the reality of it. The reality of it is 200 well-seasoned killing machines were going after one guy who didn't carry a weapon, who preached peace, who was the light of the world, who didn't rabble-rouse personally anyone, is there with just a bunch of fishermen and a few other little guys, and there they are sending this army of guys. But it didn't just say that. Look in the passage. Besides these guys coming to take Jesus away, it also says here, there was also officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. We will call that now the temple police. So you have the civil soldiers and then you have the religious police that are representing those two groups. So now you see both entities coming for Jesus. Now back to the passage. It says that when they came to them, it says they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now in other passages, the weapons were swords and they were clubs. Now I thought this was quite interesting as well. Because while they're coming after Jesus, they still didn't know exactly what he looked like. We also know that it was at night. And in their minds, they probably thought that this guy was going to cause trouble. So they brought their weaponry in case Jesus would rise up against them. Even then, I think that's odd again against that size of crowd that's well trained. But they also brought their lanterns so that in case this Jesus decided to run and to flee and maybe to hide in the bushes, they might be able to see him. But a little side note would be that Passover is usually on a full moon, and they really didn't need to see that either. The other interesting fact is Jesus already said that uh, he is our peace. Paul refers to him as that. We also know that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So he is the peace, so they didn't need weaponry, and he's the light of the world, so technically they really didn't need to bring all those lanterns. And when you see the passage, you're going to see what Jesus did that is very odd for someone to respond in such a way as he did when people are coming against them, especially when you don't deserve it. 
So this is all going on. Now, what's not said in this passage is what's happening with Judas. Well, we know a lot about the background, but I would like you to know that John does not give Judas a great deal of press. He kind of gives Judas a little comment to let us know that Judas is still there. He's observing all of this, so you know that he's not left out of the story, but not a lot of press. What is interesting is that Judas is now leading these guys. So he got these soldiers, policemen, and he's bringing them now to Jesus. So he's kind of leading them. He's kind of showing them which way it is. But now he has to point out which of these 11 guys would be Jesus. What does he do? Well, we know another pattern. He kissed Jesus. Now, the oriental custom is you would kiss someone on their feet. You might kiss them on their garment. Certainly, you could kiss them on their hand. But if you were intimate as a friend, you would kiss them on the cheeks or maybe even on the lips. And again, this is fulfilled prophecy for those of you that are outside the faith and you're wondering, is this just another story? Jesus continually fulfills and allows to be fulfilled things that were said, like his own familiar friend Judas who turns on him from the book of Psalms when Judas then kisses him. On the lead. And you know what's so interesting is that Jesus is knowing all of this ahead of time of what's going on. Well, let's go back here. So it says here that these guys came up, the behind the scene, Judas is kissing him. Verse 4 says, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, and then it talks about what he does. If you do not have that phrase underlined in your Bible, may I suggest that you do that? This again is showing to you and to me the omniscience of God. This is showing to you and to me that he knows all things, the end from the beginning. In fact, we know in Scripture that he knew man would fall before man would fall and he had the plan of salvation already in place and it began to be in motion from the time man fell all the way to this very moment right here. He knew all things ahead of time. Well, we've been giving you a lot of history about who Jesus is and I hope you could really respect that he's not just a man or a beginner of some religion, but that he is God himself. But I want you to know this. He also knows all the beginnings of your life and all the endings of your life. He knows everything about your life. He knows what's going to happen this afternoon. He knows what's going to be on your job tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen a year from now. He knows all things about you, and he loves you, and every detail of your life is a part of his life that he cares for for you. And so you are never alone in God's plan for you is huge and you are important. We'll go back to this passage again. We're still in this Roman soldier trial, so to speak. So he talks about him knowing all these things ahead of time and how important that is to him. And then says, And he went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? I like that phrase, he went forth. Generally, when someone is coming at you, you're going to kind of step back. He didn't do that. He stepped forward into this. Again, that goes back to what I said at the beginning of the message, and that is that he gave his life. He stood in front of the other guys that were with him. He went to the action. I like to think that the Lord also goes before you and me when we have to face action in our life. But let's go back here a little bit to the passage. So he went forth to them, and he begins to speak with them. And he says, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. Now, I don't know what translation of the Bible that you have, but the one I have, it has the word he in italics. I am he. Now, they did a good job because they capitalized the he because that's who he is. He's God. But if you're following along in a Greek New Testament, you're not going to find the word he there. All you're going to find is the phrase, I am, period. That's it. 
Now that fits with all that he's been teaching ahead of time that we've already studied in John. I am, I am, I am, I am, without the he. I am the great I am. That's referring again to his Godhead. Notice the response of what happened after that occurred. It said, here I am, and Judas also who was betraying him was standing with him. We already covered that. So when he said to them, I am, again, they drew back and fell to the ground. Amazing, isn't it? All those soldiers, all he had to say was who he was. I am. By the force of who he was, by the force of his name, by the force of the fact that he is God in the flesh, that created such a response that however men there were there, 60, 100, 200, killing machine, soldiers of the uh, police of the, uh, the temple, plus even, I believe, Judas himself, at that very moment, there was that falling back. I don't think it was because Jesus had bad breath. I think there was a major statement that was going on at that time, and there was a result when he was fully coming forth, identifying who he was. So he made that statement. And it goes a little bit further in verse 7. Therefore, again, he said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus then comes back and said, I told you that I am, so if you seek me, let these go their way. Now, you might want to underline the word me, because that's where the emphasis is. If you seek me, then let these other guys go. You're not after them. They're not the problem right here. In a sense, because Jesus knew it all, Jesus was, Judas was only now turning Jesus in. So if you are seeking me, let these guys go. You know, as I look through this, there's a couple of truths that I see. You have three of them there. You might want to fill in those blanks and refer to them often. And that is, when I see what Jesus did when he spoke the word, Jesus' very word defining who he was, I am, that overpowered those soldiers. That means that no matter how many clubs and spears, no matter how many men you send, no matter whose authority you might come in to come to me, Jesus is saying, it doesn't really matter. Jesus didn't bring up a weaponry. All he did was speak his name, and he was taking authority over that situation. So he, had, he overpowered them. The second is that he commanded them. He didn't ask them. He said, who are you looking for? You want me? You take me. These guys go. And as you read through this context and the context in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to see that's exactly what those guys did. They gave up the rest of them, and they just went after Jesus. Of course, that's all who they were looking for. But they could have taken the whole band in and made trouble for the other 11 guys. wasn't the case. Jesus commanded them. That's what he did to the soldiers. But I want you to look at what's going to come next in this passage because not only did he overpower them and command them, he also had his 11 guys that he still takes care of. And that's where I feel like it's a little bit like you and me. If you trusted Christ as your Savior and you are a fully devoted follower of Christ, you're like a disciple. And just like those 11 guys, I want you to know that the Lord in His way, in His timing, is going to protect you and me. So let's look at the passage. So he says, let them go. And now he specifically does this as a response to a promise he made. Verse 9. He said, let them go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. The promise of the Lord is that once we've trusted Him as Savior, He will never lose us. That doesn't necessarily mean that we won't lose our life for whatever reason, maybe even martyrdom, but it does mean this. We will never lose our salvation because we don't keep our salvation. He keeps us saved until the time we're in heaven and we have eternal life with Him forevermore. 
So he didn't lose any of them and he'll protect us. But let's go on to the next part here in verse 10 because we're going to see it in a practical, pragmatic way with Simon. Simon Peter then having a sword, and by the way, for another thought for some of you, in other passages of Scripture, these 11 guys, it said that there were two swords among these guys. doesn't surprise me that Peter would have a sword. He always wants to, you know, carry it. I, I thought it was funny when I was in Texas. Um, probably shouldn't tell you this, but since it's going to be broadcast in San Antonio, but I won't tell you what church, but I came to this church, uh, Carol and I did, to speak on a Sunday morning. And uh, some of my good friends were there, a pastor was there, a Christian leader, founder of a Christian ministry in San Antonio were there. And so they ushered me into the pastor's office and, and they're very happy guys and they're jovial and friends. So they're teasing me about this, that and the other and wondering if I had a skirt and a hula skirt and coconuts and all that stuff that these mainland people like to build a caricature about. And they said, well, we don't, we don't tolerate any of that kind of stuff. And then one of the men, so I won't identify him completely, he pulls up his pant leg. And what do you think is strapped to the thigh of his ankle, or the, to the calf of his ankle of his leg? What do you think, anybody? You're right, he had a gun. And I'm thinking, who in the world? What? That made me nervous just knowing he had he. And then they went one step further. They said, and there are a dozen other men in this church, so don't cause trouble, Pastor Stan. I said, you better believe I won't. Now, why am I telling I don't know why I'm telling that story. But back to this. Peter had a sword. Wasn't a big sword, small sword, but he had a sword. And one other guy did too. They often tell you that when he went for the ear, Peter wasn't stupid. He didn't say, you know what, I, I think that ear got to go, and he takes it off. They really think that what happened is that this particular servant slave by the name of Malchus tipped his head down to kind of duck when Peter was kind of rearing back to swashbuckle that sword around. And when he did, he didn't get down fast enough and he lost an ear. Now what you don't see a lot in this passage, but you'll see in other passages, what he did is this, Jesus now. How did he really protect Peter? This is really cool. What he did is he took that ear off the ground, or however he did it, he took it and he repaired that servant's ear that was lopped off, made it as good, perfectly healed that ear. It's quite possible that had he killed that servant, he certainly assaulted him, that Peter was in grave danger now because now the soldiers had a reason to take someone other than Jesus. They could have taken Peter. But Jesus, in such a kind way, diffused the situation immediately, took care of the ear. But here's something else. Not only did he fix a problem, and maybe this is something for us parents to remember, he still gave a little bit of a rebuke to Peter. Look at the rest of the verse. It says this. He cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus, telling me that John was an eyewitness to this. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. We're not taking off anybody else's ears today. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Meaning this, do not stop what God's sovereign plan has set in motion before the foundation of the world. Do not stop God's plan, no matter what, because this is what I am to do. That is huge to me. There's a lot of lessons in that. I do think that we ought to go public with our faith. I think we ought to let our voice be heard, whether it's in a voting machine or at times when we want to make known and special assemblies and court system. But I think it's very wise for us to realize that God's plan is still God's plan and he has sovereignly set in motion what he sets in motion. And to realize that perhaps the most effective way to reach people for Christ is to let them know about Jesus Christ in love. That some of this stuff that goes on, Jesus says, you don't need to take up a sword in my defense. 
I can defend myself, and I will defend the way of righteousness. Well, let's go back again, because we see what's happening here. I look at the fact that he overpowered them, he commanded them, and he protects them. So let me ask a question that when I was going through this, I asked myself, who do I go to for power? Who do I look to for power? Since Jesus is all-powerful, I need to go to him, but how many times I try to do things in the flesh myself? I try to, I try to solve my own problems, and I, I really don't go to him for the strength that I need to have or to, to get my prayers answered the way I need to have them answered. I will tell you, those of you who travel frequently, I don't think there's a greater time maybe in our life other than when we have a health issue that we don't really have to seek God's help because there's so much confusion when we travel. Do you not agree with that? But sometimes we get so frustrated, we want to take everything in our own hands and we frustrate ourselves, we frustrate the people around us, we basically lose our testimony or at least a platform upon which to speak the gospel to someone because we were so angry or hostile or, or you know, just angst with those people. Instead of just going to the Lord and saying, Lord, help us now to deal with this, take authority over this, help me now to show Christian grace. It doesn't mean I can't speak truth. It doesn't mean that I can't ask or make an appeal when I need to do that. But let me do it in the kindest way possible. So when you have an issue in your life, you know that God is an authority. And you go to Him when you have to seek power. And then I ask myself the question about who, who commands me? Who's my CEO? Well, we know it's the Lord, but sometimes I put God so much out there that yes, He's my CEO. And He is that inform, but how does he instruct me? How does he command me? It's going to come through the word. And so just like he spoke the word and those soldiers then did what he told them to do by releasing those 11 guys, I want you to know that God is going to speak to me through the word here. And that's why I implore all of you, get yourself a good Bible. Read the scriptures carefully, in depth, Study the Word of God. And when, it, when you do that, it's not just so that you finally can understand who God is. That's important. But understand who God is to you and how you are going to respond to this God in submission and yieldedness and obedience to Him. So command is almost worthless if we don't obey it. And then the protection. To know that in whatever measure that God is there to wrap His ever-loving arms around you, to take care of you to the point. And for us who are, a Christian, who are Christians, our protection may not be just in this world that we come out smelling like a rose. It will be that when we die, we'll spend eternity with the rose of Sharon. And that's the greatest rose we could ever have. Well, back to this passage here. Let's go to the second trial. Jesus before the religious courts. Jesus before the religious courts. You'll notice in your notes that I'm giving you 12 through 14, and then I'm skipping verses 15 through 18, and I'm going to 19 through 24. The reason I'm doing that is because those verses I'm skipping over is going to deal with, uh, are going to deal with Peter. And I want to put him in a special trial compartment. And I want to talk about him in a moment. So I'm going to separate him out of this event. So it's going to look a little disjointed because I want you to just see the religious court, the religious trial at this time, as well as the way John is projecting it. So let's begin now at verse 12. It says, So the Roman cohort and the commanders and the officers of the Jews, they arrested Jesus and bound him. Although they didn't need to do that, Jesus went forth. And it says, Then he led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Now let's just pause for a moment because I want to talk about what's happening here. So as you read all the Gospels, you're going to see that there's something big happening. 
What you see here is the word Annas. Now, Annas is referred to here as the high priest, but technically, technically, that's a key word, he is not the high priest. Now, it's not that there's a confusion or contradiction of Scripture because he also, Scripture also says you have Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, why isn't it a contradiction? Because Annas was the high priest during this time of Jesus, but not during the trial here. In fact, he was such a strong religious high priest, he actually put together what I like to call a religious high priest machinery to do what he wanted to for financial gain in the control and influence of Israel. Now, Annas was not only a high priest, but he had four sons who were high priests. He had a grandson who was high priest. And if you read in the story here, you're going to find that Caiaphas was his son-in-law. So he had a daughter who wasn't a high priest, but she married one who qualified to be a high priest. So he had this huge religious machinery going. Now, if you study further in Scripture, you're going to find that there was this issue going on between Annas and Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't have an issue because he was the authority over all issues. But Annas had it. Now, why was that? Because if you remember, there was a time when Jesus chased the money changers out of the temple. Do you remember that? When he did that, who was the high priest then? It was Annas at the time. So what Jesus was doing was disrupting the money machine that was going on. Maybe for our language today, we would use the word, Annas was like the godfather. He was the mafiosa father of the religious sect, or religious sect of the Jews, the high priest. I shouldn't say sect. Now you have Caiaphas that's going on. But you say, well, why would they refer to Annas' high priest and Caiaphas' high priest? Well, let's bring it back to us today as far as president now. We have our own president in office, so we're going to call him president. But the presidents who are not in office any longer, if you see them on talk shows, usually the interviewer will still refer to our president, who is now retired from his role of presidency, as president. In a sense, that's what's happening here with Annas. Now, the interesting thing is as we get into this trial, it begins to show you a trial that was not fair. It starts right out with Annas himself doing the questioning. So let's look at the passage again. So Annas gets involved in this because they bring him to Annas. Probably they did that because he was the, uh, the figurehead of the, of the statesman of the high priest. And that's why they brought, it to, brought Jesus to him first. So they begin starting out here by saying what's going on. And we're going to pick it up at verse, um, oh, let's pick it up at verse 19. It says, the high priest then questioned Jesus, that's still referring to Annas, about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. So there's nothing that hasn't already been heard by others. Meaning the fact you should be bringing other witnesses here because you need to question them legally before you question me. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him. Now let me pause for a moment. Parentheses. Do you know the verse that says that when you're struck on one cheek, you should turn the other cheek? Remember how they talk about that? This is an example of what Jesus means. It doesn't mean I turn one cheek, go ahead and hit me with the other cheek, and then I'm going to nail you. What it really is is this. I have my one cheek. I give you my one report. You now come at me. 
I will still explain myself. Now, he could have wiped them all out. He didn't do that. What he did was to, one more time, set the record straight by telling the truth. So when you're put in a position, you may turn one cheek to someone and they'll come at you with whatever they might come at you with. Then you just come back and you turn the other cheek and with grace but truth, you share the truth with them and then you allow the Lord and His infinite wisdom to work through that circumstance however He chooses with you. And of course, that's what happened here and Jesus went to full, full course. Back to the passage again. So then He one more time says to them, all right, I am who I said I was going to be. Why do you question me? When he had said this, he was struck. And Jesus said, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? You have no right to do this. I'm not condemned to do anything wrong here. So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, which is now saying Annas couldn't really do anything. He was a figurehead high priest. He now realizes that this is getting out of hand. This is not where it should go. That the right person that could bring the final judgment religiously is going to come from Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear.